0: Fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripture Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine. We discuss the writer side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. I'm recording like three episodes in a row and my ears really hurt from my headphones. Um just if you wanted a life update. Um We're about to get spoilery for a book that I'm warning you will be readily ruined if you keep listening and have yet to read it. If you honestly have no interest in reading it at all or if you already have or have seen some interpretation on it then stick around and see what you can get out of this discussion. Uh, Today we are leaving the realm of fantasy and even young adult to talk about the ABC murders by Agatha Christie. So, up front, I am not a huge murder mystery reader, but Agatha Christie is definitely the favorite that pops to mind. I know I'll pretty much always be satisfied if I choose to pick up one of her books. Fun fact, her work is outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare, which means that if God or playwrights didn't count, she'd be the best-selling author of all time. And i do think she deserves it but i will say up front that though i do like myself some criminal minds and other crime shows i'm not the deepest diver into this genre so it's possible you murder mystery gurus have a different take on how entertaining this book was but good books will please both outsiders and veterans of their genres i think and i liked it so let's get into why the basic premise is that poirot christie's famous detective whose name i may mispronounce several times is up against a serial killer directly taunting him before the murders take place. And the murders are alliterative, so he kills someone with an A name and an A city, then a B name and a B city, and so on. Hastings, Poirot's Watson, is the point of view in this book, and if you've listened to my Alice in Wonderland analysis, this is another great example of the main character being different from the point of view character. Poirot is clearly our focus and center, but Hastings is our lens. He's so background, actually, that I often forget he's there most of the time, that most Poirot books aren't third but are actually first person, that the person narrating it isn't Poirot or the writer, but Hastings. It's a super interesting tactic that comes up a lot in detective books. Sherlock stories do this too, and I think some other genres might consider trying this strategy for themselves. Hastings is almost so relatable that you don't notice he exists, which is very cool. He blends in with the background. Anyway, the interesting thing about this particular first-person narrative is that there are a few sections, maybe 10 or so throughout the book, that actually are in third-person that deviate from Hastings' point of view. And yet they still are Hastings' point of view because in a foreword that is essentially a frame story, Hastings tells us that he's still the one writing those third-person accounts of times he wasn't there, but based on testimony of people who were and who he trusts to be telling him the story accurately. It's like if I told you a story about how my friend's day went as though I had been physically present for it. What is this? Fourth person? I don't know. Whatever it is, it's an interesting way to justify mixing first and third person, which is usually tremendously problematic because it brings inconsistency to your story. I still can't really tell how I feel about it here, except that I think it ultimately pays off. I wish maybe Hastings' point of view was done in close third person, but that would almost ruin the point of view versus main character factor because third person would inherently have to give us more details on Hastings, or forget him altogether and focus on Perot. So it's interesting experimentation here, if nothing else, but it, it is weird. Now, the question becomes who are these third person chapters centered on? And that brings us to my main point about this book, the plot, and the roller coaster that it was for me. This book is titled The ABC Murders because the kills are alphabetical, but also because the murderer literally titles himself ABC. And we are introduced from, I think, the second chapter to a random man going about his day whose initials just happened to be ABC. And I'm thinking to myself, no, that's that's too obvious. It can't be him, right? But here's the thing. Here's why I second-guessed myself. This book was published in 1936. And I don't read a lot of murder mysteries, so I don't have a good grasp of all the tropes. Was it obvious to people who would have been reading it at the time? That's the question. That's always the question when reading classics, because literary movements are fluid and they build on each other. What might have been a plot twist in 1900 is cliche now, but readers back then would have thought it brilliant. So I, underestimating Christie for like the 12th time, I kid you not, just assumed, oh, this is the killer and Christie is trying a new thing by focusing on the psychology. It was a surprise back then, but I'm going to be bored out of my mind. I figured this was essentially the precursor to Criminal Minds, that she was doing something new for her time by getting us into the mind of the killer, telling us who it was up front so the book would be about how Perot is going to catch him and not who he's catching. And Perot even sort of backs this up. The whole time, the police are like, murder is happening and people are panicked. And Perot's all thoughtfully like, but why is he doing this? And no one else thinks it's an important question, but it is. Ultimately, it does turn out that this ABC is a red herring, or rather a frame job, but we'll get to that, and the person who turns out to actually be the killer was pretty constantly saying things like, who knows why homicidal maniacs do the things they do, and you can't attach logic to this, which didn't seem suspicious at all, because I imagine that's how people viewed the criminally insane back then. The idea of professionally analyzing psychopath behavior was new in Christie's time, even if people had had theories before then, and Poirot is one of the only characters saying things like, but even madmen are logical to themselves, and that's Poirot's big confusion with this case, that the behavior of a killer taunting him by sending him letters and too organized to have a coherent motive is at odds with someone who would want to kill in the first place. This is what leads him to doubt the guilty party is the guilty party, despite how neatly it all fits together. And because we as readers are getting these interspersed chapters from ABC's point of view, making him look really guilty, I assumed a big why it was coming. For most of the book, I was sort of grudgingly believing this was the solution, that ABC was the killer and that I was supposed to be looking for the details to get him caught rather than anything else. I figured the story was just taking the next step in the early murder mystery genre literary movement. If anyone watched Criminal Minds from the beginning, you know that those first couple seasons didn't really show us the killer until the final reveal. The scenes focused solely on the BAU profiling and then capturing the killer, and sometimes it was a person we hadn't even seen in earlier scenes. Then, progressively, the show became alternating scenes between the BAU and the criminal so that we as the viewers got some insight into the mentality during the killing sprees and not just from the profiling point of view. I assumed, after a few chapters of this book, that Christie was making that next step, too, just in line with the literary concept instead. That most murder mysteries, even hers, up until this point had focused on finding the killer without revealing to the audience anything but clues beforehand— and she was taking the next step, like criminal minds, in revealing the killer up front and then alternating scenes between him and the police. But that's not what she was doing here. Was Chrissy faking us out here? Did she expect people to think he was the killer? Did she expect it to be a shock when he was later arrested? I don't know, but either way it works really well. It's a really great example of a red herring except it's not a real red herring because it is in and of itself a clue it kept me second guessing despite how obvious a direction the plot seemed to be going let's go back to criminal minds in one season the show brought in agent Seaver, who i liked but seems to have divided people so i don't know how you felt she was the daughter of a caught serial killer and in her very first case we got an episode that really stuck out to me Mothers in this gated community were being murdered by a serial killer, and it seemed very cut and dry at first. Like, Seaver was supposed to be our focus, her psychology, and what having a serial killer father had done to her mission in life. It was just an episode for character introduction, seemingly. It's at least halfway through the episode before we realize something very different is going on. The result of this episode is essentially that the husband of one of the victims wanted his wife dead, but didn't want to risk getting caught killing her, so he killed a bunch of other random women first, sticking his wife into the mix so the police would assume a psychopath killer was on the loose and wouldn't cast any suspicion on members of the family like you usually would for a single murder. Essentially, he played off the public's clear fascination with serial killers, but giving them one to hide himself from the limelight even as his wife was killed. At the time, I thought this was brilliant. It was the first plot I'd ever seen like it and I was so impressed. I assumed it was the first of its kind. But it wasn't, because that's what happens in the ABC murders. The brother of the third victim wanted his brother dead, so he set up an elaborate scheme to make the police think there was a serial killer on the loose so that no suspicion would be placed on him despite obvious motive. He was a sane, rational mind committing apparently senseless killings, and he didn't know to make the psychology fit because he assumed no one would look that closely. I think it's likely that most people at the time, in a way we don't anymore, assumed crazy people were just crazy with no logic. But they are, like Perot says, logical to themselves. So the idea of a murderer being simultaneously full of enough bloodlust to want to kill, but keeping enough self-control to choose victims according to such an arbitrary system of the alphabet didn't sit right with Perot. This idea of cover for one murder with several is such a good one. And because of that Criminal Minds episode, it occurred to me the moment the second victim was killed in this book. But then, I ignored my instincts because I assumed Christie was too long ago for that. Why do I always underestimate her just because she wrote these in the 1900s? I don't know. Anyway, I assumed this idea for cover with one murder with several was essentially too ingenious for someone so close to the early murder mystery trends that the genre as a whole would have needed time to build to that kind of twist. But it didn't. That's the twist here, and I loved it. Was this the first case, or has this been something that has occurred to a lot of people before? I don't know, but I think it's a great twist, because serial killers are real. It will never be cliche to write about them, so other types of criminals will always want to use that to their advantage. Very interesting. Something to always be on the lookout for. Great twist, even when I was half expecting it still gets into the psychology in a fascinating and, from my rudimentary knowledge, accurate way, but not in a flat way. Let's go back to the concept the killer was relying on, that most people think crazy people have no logic to them, that because it doesn't make sense to us, it must make sense to nobody. However, keep in mind, everyone does things for a reason, whether or not outsiders think it's a good one. This is a great thought to consider for character building remembering that the things your characters do need to make perfect sense to them, even if it's deviant or cruel or anything else. Bad guys aren't bad because they want to be bad. Good guys aren't good because they want to be good. Crazy people aren't crazy because they can't help themselves. There are motives and experiences behind every action, and they are in line with a psychological portrait of a whole person, not just something propelling a plot. Perot is the only one consistently saying But even homicidal maniacs are logical to themselves, and he's often dismissed for it, even by Hastings. Remember him? Our point of view? I didn't. Anyway, nowadays, because of our societal obsession with serial killers, most of us know behavior has a psychology to it, that there's a reason a killer stabs versus strangles or kills women versus men. So the killer in this book is undone by the fact that he didn't think there needed to be logic to a serial killer's crimes. He didn't plan to make the behavior fit. But now, we know there does, and I think it would be great to get a story about a murderer like this, framing someone else who knows a lot about how psychology works. How would anyone catch that kind of killer? Someone just as smart and just as motivated, but who knows how to match behavior to the kills? I think that might be the next step in the murder mystery literary movement swing. But who knows? Maybe it's already been done before. I would love to write it myself, but I don't have the murder mystery mind like Christy does. I would also really love to see other genres, like young adult fantasy, include sub-genres like the murder mystery vibe. I think that would be so cool. We could build it into a fantasy world. I still don't think I have the mind for it, but one of you might, so please get on that. I I would read it. I do think, despite all her greatness, Christy has a weakness, and that's her follow-through. Her plots are always really intricate and make a lot of sense, even though I never figure them out until the end reveal, which is the best part, but after the end reveal, it all starts to feel generic. Once caught, all the accused in her mysteries suddenly start to behave the same. Rarely does anyone try to run. Rarely does anyone protest beyond when Poirot has proven their guilt, and part of this is because Poirot plans ahead so well and always makes sure the police are around, but I do think part of this is that Christie's falling actions are just all very similar. None of the other people in the room ever even get that emotional, even if the reveal of the killer reveals that someone has betrayed them or lied to them or killed their loved one. So Poirot's reveals are really epic on the level of Psych, the TV show, right? But then they just kind of fall apart from there. Part of this might be because Poirot is our focus, our character threaded throughout the series. So... There's no real need to get into too much detail about the future of the side characters because he will remain. But I do wish there was some variety in their reactions and in the real ending, because there's some great reveals at the end of the cases that I think should be matched by the end. So one note, make sure that even if you have a great plot and great characters, that you don't let yourself get lazy with the ending, right? Once you've made that big climactic reveal, you still have to have a falling action. It can be short and sweet, but it does still need to showcase characters reacting and moving forward as who they have shown themselves to be, not deviating into archetypical roles. A few notes about Christy. Why is she always subtly nodding that Hastings might be cheating on his wife? (laughs) Poirot is always like, ah, this girl involved in our case is beautiful, no? And Hastings will blush, but like, He's married. He says so at the beginning of this book. It's very strange. I think the view on adultery back then was generally kind of weird because Christie's characters often just gloss over this notion as though everyone was doing it and it wasn't a big deal. Five little pigs, after the funeral, and several others. Her characters are like, we totally get this could be a motive for murder. But sleeping around isn't that big of a deal, right? As long as I always come home to my wife... Like, no, it's still a terrible, terrible immoral crime. And I can't stand it. Look like in the ABC murders. One of the victims had a man she was essentially planning to marry, but she still liked to go out with other guys. And he had a problem with this. And apparently that was his fault. And she would say things to him like, we're not married. Why do you care what I do? And I was just like, dump her. At least her sister was finally the voice of reason, saying, it's not like someone innocent got killed here. She was kind of a jerk. And then she and her sister's maybe fiancé got together, and I was like, good. At least there was no casual malice with them. It just always throws me when Christy casually brings it up, and Poirot says or agrees with this, ah, we've all been there, or hey, it happens. Attitude. It most certainly does not just happen to us all. So it's just really weird whenever I read that in her stuff. I would also like to know what happened to her that causes this recurring theme that every time her mysteries involve romance, one of the parties involved is inevitably the killer. This is a running theme in her books that murder and love are not that distant from each other and can lead to one another, which is probably not an unusual stance for a murder mystery writer to have. But still, death in the clouds, I think three-act tragedy, and a few others, Poirot makes this point that murder brings people together, and sometimes it's like, with the murderer? (laughs) It's a very interesting trope that she uses in this book, too. We're given a hint at a romance that turns out to be kind of half-true, but mostly the guy is just faking liking her to hide his motives for the murder. I do wish YA would do this more, allow love interests to not always be so genuine, YA books are a little more about wish fulfillment sometimes, or operate with this assumption that because the characters are teenagers, their mistakes are sheer accident and not abject selfishness, which I don't think is particularly true. Not to sound pessimistic, but everyone, even children, is capable of selfishness and wrongdoing. A lot of YA and NA books have really deep betrayal that is then explained away or redeemed by proclamations of real feelings, and I just think it's more realistic that sometimes people are using each other, or will ultimately choose to save themselves over a love interest. So kudos to Christy for that, if not the adultery thing. Now we come to my last point, which is what I would call the theme of this book, and it's summed up in Poirot's reasoning for why he is so bitter with the guy who ultimately turns out to be the killer. He uses this metaphor that catching a fox in a box is crueler than killing it outright on a hunt, that the fear of being chased is momentary, death a mercy, but that trapping it escalates its fear and suffering, and that this is ultimately unforgivable. This is a line he says early on where he's actually commending whoever the murderer is because he's at least not attempting to frame someone innocent for his crimes. The killer is seemingly taking credit so no one else gets the blame that's actually what's happening the whole time? It turns out the supposed killer is the one being framed, taking credit only because he's been manipulated into thinking he's guilty, and Poirot is extra motivated to catch the real killer even after everyone else thinks the case is wrapped up because he finds a certain unfairness and unforgivableness in this idea of trapping someone innocent, a sort of malice that isn't present in the actual murders. And I think this is super interesting because I do think in society, there's this accepted idea that murder is the worst thing you can do to someone or endure. No one ever tries to argue this because it's murder and we all realize that that's awful. And while I do hold murder is legitimately awful, the victim of a murder reaches a point where they're no longer suffering because they're dead. The only person left to suffer is the killer. I think there are plenty of crimes just as awful as murder because the victim has to survive it. So I thought it was cool that in a murder mystery case, Christy both acknowledges this and then makes it the theme. She doesn't just settle for a good story. She says something with it, and that seems almost rare these days. There seems to be this certain percentage of writers that think telling a fun, enjoyable story is all that's necessary, that it doesn't matter if you have something to say about life or people if you're just doing it for fun. And I would argue that having something to say is what makes the story valuable and fun in the first place, but I can't tell how in the minority I might be here. This book proves that you can, in fact, do both, <laughs> that you should. This is, strictly speaking, just a fun murder mystery. If you want to read it on a shallow level, you can. It's about a serial killer, but not only do a lot of people find them fascinating, the stakes are never so high that you're terrified or feeling some sense of the universe on your shoulders thematically. It's fun. It's enjoyable. But it also, for those who want it, embodies a great theme. It may not be heavy, but it is deep. Fun books can, and should, have something to say just as often as more serious books, because I think that's the point of writing it all. That's arguably why this book is still popular while others might not be. That line early on about a fox in a box was a clue for readers that not all was as it seemed in the plot. It was a hint to look further and question if someone was being framed, we just didn't consider the one being framed might also incorrectly be certain of his own guilt and therefore also be misleading us. That line serves a dual purpose, plot and theme. So the theme of this book takes an already fun plot and makes an impact with it. I think ultimately that's the perfect storm of writing. That's what we as writers should be striving to do. It's also notable that Christie only used this one line slash conversation of foreshadowing and it was really effective. You don't always have to foreshadow over and over. Sometimes a good, memorable conversation that implies the coming theme is enough, especially in a supposedly formulaic genre that you plan to put a twist on. It's always really fun when I see older books stand the test of time and make the same impact they were intended to or did make back when they were first published. It's also nice when they're just obscure enough to not get spoiled by pop culture, There is a movie or TV series of this book I think, but I was still able to read it knowing very little about its plot. Some classics would never get published today, but The ABC Murders is a good example of writing that stands the test of time because it does something universal. There is something universal in the theme of A Fox in a Box, whether or not you agree with Christie's or my take on it. There is something universal about the idea of a detective story with a good twist. And I think, as writers, we should be striving to write stories that stand the test of time. I'm sure Christie relied on plenty of trends in this book. The detective story itself is often considered formulaic. But the way she executed the story, it stays popular, while the knowledge of the trends fades away. We aren't reading the plethora of similar novels that may have come before or after her. We're reading her, because she did them arguably the best. She did them in her unique voice, in her way, with fresh and yet universally accessible ideas. So to a degree, we need to be concerned with what's popular. But we might need to be even more concerned with doing something fundamentally good with our writing, even if the trends aren't currently seeing it. Following trends for the sake of it, or following a theme because it's popular, is going to result in a shallow take on the subject. Readers will sense that. They may forgive it now while it's popular, but not later. So if you're a writer trying to gain popularity by following trends, I think the cost of this is that your popularity can't outlast your own lifetime. And maybe that is or isn't something you want or care about, but if you want your stories to still impact people long after your death, like the Brontes or Tolkien or Joyce or Agatha Christie, taking trends and then subverting them or not following them at all to write something universally enjoyable is the way to go. There is a place for books specific to their time, but even something like The Great Gatsby retains its popularity despite its very specific setting. That's because of the themes. That's because of the writing. That's because of the plot and the characters and how they aren't just products of a trend, but are rather pieces the author clearly cared about in a vacuum. The author cared about using those elements to say something, So your story can't exist in a vacuum. It comes at a certain time, in a certain place, and from a certain person. But your love for it, and therefore its impact on readers, should be able to stand there, on its own, in any time, in any place, from the point of view of any person. And I think it's obvious that in cases like this, like the ABC murders, Christie really cared about telling a good story. There may be no accounting for taste, but there is accounting for quality. And I think as writers, that's something we need to put serious thought and effort into. All right, that's all for this discussion. And thank goodness, because my ears are killing me. (sighs) I should really design headphones better. Anyway, let us know if you would like to hear an analysis of any specific book. And I will see you on the next page.